2: Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.
3: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbank's Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. We'll miss Kim this week. She's out. We already miss her, but we'll be looking forward to having her back next week. Today, we'll be discussing Judge Cannon's most recent ruling in the Mar a Lago investigation, the start of the Oath Keepers' seditious conspiracy trial, and I understand that Barb has an exciting new project she wants to discuss with us. As always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we get started, y'all, did you see this crazy story yesterday about Lizzo? Was this playing the flute in the Library of Congress? It was. I mean, it was like, you know, she picked up this flute that belonged to James Madison and played it. And the next thing you know, the internet went crazy with people who I'm sure didn't even know that this flute existed 48 (laughs) hours ago. Like it was some sort of just, it was wacka, right? What did you think about it? I think that
0: it was special for Lizzo and that if some other performer, someone with the qualities and talent that she had did it, there wouldn't have been a big ruckus. And this sort of fits with everything we're seeing about stereotypes and gender bias. That's what I think this is. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I, I saw the clip. She was joyful. She's a, a, a trained, I guess they call it a flautist. She's a classically trained flautist. And the Library of Congress invited her to play a, a number of historic flutes, including this one made of crystal that was owned by James Madison or something. And she did, and she did it in a, such a joyful way. Um I, I don't see what the fuss is all about. But you know one thing it reminds me of, Jill, and as is, is, is Joyce just said, probably nobody even knew this thing existed before um, this event, but... One of the things that reminds me of Jill is um, you once said that um, things are meant to be used as intended, yes. and although this crystal flute I'm sure is there to also look pretty, it's a functioning flute, and so it should be played from time to time by someone who knows how to play it—a classically trained flautist. And you know what it reminds me of, um, Jill, is the time you visit—you you hosted me at your home, and we were having brunch. And you served uh, coffee in a beautiful uh, cup, a beautiful teacup. And as I was holding the teacup, I broke it and I felt so (laughs) bad. I was so sorry and I was so apologetic. And you said, you know what, it's okay because things are intended to be used. And that teacup was intended to be used by, by a friend drinking tea. And if it broke, then that's that's the way it goes. Um, but she didn't break the flute; she used it as it was intended. Right. I think she she brought uh, you know attention and respect to the flute. So uh, right. I, I agree with you, Jill. I think that's it's, such
0: uh, a good point, Barb. I'm glad you reminded me of that because. I get so aggravated by people who put things in a safe deposit box, beautiful jewelry or silver, and they don't use it. And what's the point of having it if you don't use it and enjoy it? This was made to make music. It was made to be beautiful and to be listened to. And she did a beautiful job of it, more than most people could have ever done, even, you know professionally trained people. So I think that was a very good and that we should all enjoy what we have and use it and share it. And if it breaks, so what? If you didn't use it, what's the point of having it?
3: Isn't that the truth? And, and you know, if anyone hasn't seen the video of her playing, it is well worth your time. I think Barb is right when she says she plays with joy. She is so skillful her her talent is just immense but her technical skill as a musician is really incredible and i was so impressed that she seemed to um switch seamlessly in the video i saw from playing this beautiful flute and also playing an instrument it looked like maybe it was a recorder maybe maybe a bass recorder it was it was pretty big but she went between those two instruments with different fingering and different positioning Just seamlessly, and and it's like her whole being just lights up with joy when she plays the music. It was really tremendous to see.
1: Oh, 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 O'Reilly!
2: You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts.
0: There was so much news this week, not counting Ian and Ukraine and Italy and so on and so on. It was really hard to pick a news topic. First, I picked the ERA arguments that have gotten very little attention, but that happened this week, or the DOJ position that it would represent the former president against Eugene Carroll because he acted within the scope of his job in defaming her. And then today, Lo and behold, just before we recorded this episode, a shocking development in the DocuGate case was reported that demands our attention.
1: So Barb, what did Judge Cannon do now? Well, it was really interesting. You know, Judge Cannon, she's the district court judge in Florida who uh, has been overseeing this search matter of the Mar-a-Lago documents. And, you know, she appointed the special master, Judge Raymond Deary, to handle all of this uh, review of, of you know, privilege assertions and other kinds of things. And he entered an order last week that said by tomorrow, he said tomorrow's date, September 30th, he wanted the parties to do a number of things um, to, you know, assert what categories they thought of protection might apply, et cetera. But one of the things that he ordered was that, Donald Trump kind of put up or shut up. He said it in much more gentle terms than that. But, you know, Donald Trump has been claiming that the FBI planted some of this evidence. And so what Judge Deary required is to say to Trump's lawyers, I want you to look at the inventory that the government has provided of all the items they took out of Mar-a-Lago, and I want you to specify which, if any, you say were not uh, possessed by Donald Trump before the FBI showed up. So, kind of a nice way of saying, if if you think something's planted, you need to say so. Um, you can't, you know, say one thing in the media and another in your court filings. Let's go. And Trump's lawyers objected to that. And uh, today, Judge Cannon overruled her own special master. Can you do that? I don't know, but she did. Um, the special master she appointed, she said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. The other thing she did was she extended all the dates set by Judge Deary. So again, if you're going to have a special master, you know, let let, let the special master do his thing. Um, he had set a fairly aggressive timetable to get this thing moving. He had set uh, a date of October 21st for the parties to make their initial review and file what they thought uh, should be the case. And then he would make his decisions. And And Judge Cannon now has said, no, um, we don't have to do this until December. So I, it's it's difficult to look at this without... Suspecting some um, ill motives here. But it is uh, still her case. It's still her call. And she has chosen to exercise her discretion.
0: Yeah, it is pretty outrageous, Barb. I cannot imagine how you will appoint a special master to save time and to save you from having to review the documents and then you second guess every decision he makes. That is. Pretty shocking. So Joyce, what's the background to this? Because we do have a prior Judge Cannon order. We have the 11th Circuit reversing in pretty harsh language, criticizing her. And then she modifies her order. And now she does this. What do you make of it? And um, I'm going to go to you on, will the 11th Circuit get into this again?
3: Yeah, so the 11th circuit only gets into this if DOJ takes an appeal. And I suspect that it's not worth the trouble. Judge Cannon is of course the federal district judge in this case and just like district judges are entitled to review decisions that magistrate judges make in cases. You know, very often you'll see a situation where a magistrate judge will work in tandem with a district judge, and the magistrate will review discovery issues or make preliminary decisions in the case, And then they file a report and recommendation that goes to the district judge, and the district judge can either accept the magistrate's decision or reject it. And so I think she's acting in a similar way here uh, with the special master, and she's chosen to reject uh, his decision. I'm actually not sure that this would be a final order that could be appealed in any event. But DOJ at this point just wants to get on with the process. They've already been successful in the important part of this case, getting the classified materials released for their use. Um, They'll just slog it out here and, and try to get this part of it done, would be my suspicion.
0: So that leaves us in a sort of funny position. And I'll start with you, Barb, but I want to ask both you and Joyce Was the special master ever a good idea? Should Trump have watched out for what Asha calls the monkey's paw, which is be careful what you wish for? And what will the special master do now? Will he just rule on the merits in favor of DOJ because there is no opposition to what they're saying? They've proved some things. They've filed affidavits, and there's no opposition to it because the... Defendants, lawyers aren't answering. And so I'm just wondering what's going to happen. What do you think, Barb? What do you think, Joyce?
1: Yeah, as you say, our friend Asha Rangappa wrote a great piece about this, uh, comparing it to that short story, The Monkey's Paw, uh, which is, you know, you get a wish and uh, be careful what you wish for because it ends up, you know, really turning out to be something awful. Uh, And, you know, Donald Trump asked for the special master and it looked like maybe it was coming back to bite him. I've never thought that a special master was necessary in this case. You know, the, the instances where you see a special master is when a lawyer's office is searched and they may have privileged communications with other clients. You know, a third party is totally unrelated to the case. And so to protect their interest, oftentimes there'll be a special master who review all that material to segregate it all out before the investigative team gets to have at it. That, that makes sense to me. You know, here, I guess there's uh, some attorney-client privilege material. And so ordinarily FBI agents who are not part of the case just do it themselves as part of a filter team. But I suppose in light of this, um, you know, hyper-partisan environment we live in, if you want to have a neutral judge, special master, review that material and set it aside for attorney-client privilege, that makes sense to me. But all this other stuff is just nonsense. The idea that any of this is subject to executive privilege as to the executive branch is just absurd. Um, We got that ruling from the 11th Circuit on the classified documents, so at least those are off the table, but you have to wonder if Judge Deary isn't wondering, like, what what on earth did I get myself into? You know, he he makes these rulings, uh, you know, and, and, and refereeing lawyers is like the worst job in the world, right? And and he he, <laughs> he 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 does a good job. He has this hearing. He sets an order, and now the judge starts micromanaging him. And you know what? what's what's next? You know, is every decision he makes going to be subject to um, change by her and, you know, clipping his wings? So I can imagine Judge Deere even thinking that, you know, I, I don't need this. <laughs> I'm not getting paid any extra money for this. I could go back to hearing my nice little cases in the Eastern District of New York and be quite happy. So I just hope he doesn't resign from the case and because I think he's about the best we're going to get. And I worry that someone else could do a worse job.
3: You know, I think Judge Deary will stick it out, or at least I hope he will too, Barb. The most distressing part—this is a six-page order that Judge Cannon has written. I mean, it's, it's short— Um, but it does a lot of damage. And I think the worst part is the way she extends the timeline. We know that Trump's goal is always delay, delay, delay. Well, here where Judge Deary said he could complete review and have everything ready to go by October, she's extended it out until the end of December. And I'm sure Trump will try to extend it even further. So Judge Deary, um, I think, has been on the bench for a while. Judge Deary knows how to get things done. Judge Cannon has been on the bench for uh, not quite two years yet. I think our listeners will recall that she was confirmed uh, after Trump lost the election in 2020. And so I think if there's any sparring that goes on between those two judges, whether Judge Deary is the special master or not, I think that he'll be able to position this process appropriately. Um, He may not be able to speed it along, given her order. It may be delayed, and delay has consequences. If you're the government... But you know, something interesting that goes on here is DOJ may not need this review to be completed in order to make its prosecuted decision. Do they want to have all the evidence? Absolutely. You want to be able to see it. But frankly, they've got the classified material. They've got witness testimony. They've got uh, the statement that they were given after uh, they were supposedly told by Trump's lawyers that everything had been turned over. And at the end of the day, that may be enough. In in my old office, we used to um, mm-hmm. say that the worst crime that a defendant could commit was pissing off the police. And that meant, um, <laughs> you know, making I love it, it when you talk Southern Joyce. <laughs> making it difficult, obstructing a law enforcement investigation. I mean, just, you know, let law enforcement do its job. And here, a former president has been intent on keeping law enforcement from doing its job and I think that that adds um, to the pressure to go ahead and bring this matter to a resolution.
0: There's one other point which Barb made last week when we uh, were recording live together, which was wonderful. And, and that was that sometimes cases get too complicated. So in fact, this may actually end up helping to keep the case clean because they have the classified documents And if the case is limited to that, they don't have to worry about the thousands and thousands of other documents. It would just be a nice, clean case involving those classified documents. So it could end up hurting Donald Trump. It's one of those, again, be careful what you wish for. You get the delay, they'll go ahead with just the simpler
2: case. The Oath
3: Keepers trial begins in earnest on Monday after jury selection was completed last Thursday. This is the first of three seditious conspiracy cases DOJ plans to try this fall, if all goes according to schedule. They are really important cases, the most serious cases brought so far in connection with January 6th. So Jill, set the table for us. What's the case about and who are the defendants?
0: The defendants are all members of the Oath Keepers. It includes the head of the Oath Keepers, uh, Stuart Rhodes. And this is a case that involves their planning to use violence and they're using violence. They're conspiring to use violence. It, It all revolves a lot around the violence because that's what seditious conspiracy requires. It requires an agreement, but it also requires the violence. And this was done to interrupt the peaceful transfer of power and to make sure that the, the president who was stayed the president despite losing the election. The defendants are all, as I said, members of the Oath Keepers who are intent on doing this, and they spent a lot of time training. They prepositioned weapons in Virginia ready to bring them into the District of Columbia, and it's going to be a really high-powered, interesting um, case. There have been some of the co-defendants have already pleaded guilty. And I, f- I find it so hard to say pleaded because in my pled. day, it's we pled. always said pleaded. pleaded. But pleaded is what person. journalists say, so I'm supposed to say pleaded, but it's "pled." Anyway, three <laughs> have already said that they were guilty and are going to be testifying. And there is reporting that Stuart Rhodes is going to testify and has what I consider to be a very tricky, risky defense, uh, which I'm sure we will talk about as we go forward with this.
3: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting case. The defendants tried to move it out of the District of Columbia. They did not want to have um, a jury in the District of Columbia. The judge told them too bad and the trial would proceed as scheduled. So, Barb, dig a little deeper for us. What does the charge involve? And and is this a difficult case to prove or an easy one?
1: The charge of seditious conspiracy is one that is used pretty rarely. Uh, In my former office, we charged it, and um, the judge ultimately dismissed the charge, not because she didn't find sedition, but because she didn't find conspiracy, which is an agreement. It can be difficult to prove, uh, but I think in this case, it's not. Now, in, in the case I handled, um, it was uh, one of these cases where the, the group, which was plotting to kill police officers, was disrupted and arrested in what the FBI calls left of boom. I, I know we've discussed this before. If you think of boom as the event, the attack on a timeline, then any moment uh, before that attack is on the timeline somewhere left of the attack. So left of boom. And the goal of the FBI is always to disrupt an attack left of boom so that people aren't hurt, property's not damaged, there's no violence, et cetera. But what happens is if you do arrest the group left of boom before anyone's hurt, then it does open you to this defense of, well, we didn't really mean it. We weren't going to go through with it. It was all just tough talk. And I think uh, you know, our case was in 2010 and people maybe were less uh, appreciative of the threat posed by uh, militia groups, paramilitary groups. Um, But I think in this case, it's a very different case because it did not happen left of boom, boom happened. And so we are very much right of boom when they get arrested and charged. And I think for that reason, it will be impossible for them to try to use that defense of this was just talk, tough talk. We were only thinking about it. We never planned to follow through with it. I, I think they did follow through with it. So I think, The conspiracy will be uh, very easy to prove. And then also the idea of sedition. So, you know, again, in my former case, the case in my former office, it was about plotting to kill police officers and federal agents. And one of the elements is that you were planning to use violence to oppose the authority of the United States. And so, you know, maybe that wasn't a perfect fit in that case. But here, it's a perfect fit. They were using physical force to try to prevent members of Congress from certifying the vote for president of the United States in the U.S. Capitol. Like, I don't think you could script a better case for sedition than that one. And so, you know, every case is is difficult because you have to rely on witnesses and other things that have to go right. The burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt is very high. There are many evidentiary burdens that the government has to overcome. But nonetheless, I think that this case is a strong one and in, in very uh, strong part because according to the indictment, they have many text messages in real time where the defendants were talking to each other about exactly what they were planning to do and then doing it. So I think it's a strong case this time.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. This situation, right? An attack on the Capitol, and effort to keep the presidential election from being certified. It's got to be that if you look up seditious conspiracy in the dictionary, this is the poster child case for it. I thought I would read the statute itself for our listeners. This is 18 United States Code, Section 2384, and this is what the government has to prove. If two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy war against them, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof, they shall each be fined under this title, or in prison not more than twenty years, or both." And so like every statute that Congress writes, this one is complicated and a little bit confusing. I guess a topic for another day is is my annoyance with Congress and their inability to write in plain English. But what you hear in this statute is that there are a lot of different options, different options that the government has to choose for how they will prove that defendants engaged in seditious conspiracy but right out of the gate, we've got this one here, as Barb says, because there's this effort, there's this conspiracy, this agreement, which is the core of the charge to use force to try to interfere with the government. And if, as the government says is in its indictment, we get to hear the communications in real time between the co-conspirators and... And also have the three cooperating co-defendants who've pleaded guilty. This one could get interesting fast. And Jill, that leads to my question for you. Because this trial, we're told, will include co-defendant testimony. How do cases like this play out when they're relying on testimony from cooperating co-defendants? So uh, let me just point out a couple of other
0: things. One, this is the first of three trials with the same basic cast of characters. And prosecutors have way more than just those three cooperating uh, defendants. They have uh, a plan that will take five to six weeks of trial, 40 witnesses, and 800 statements from those charged, plus, of course, videos and thousands of messages, hundreds of hours of video, uh, phone call records, phone calls. So there's a lot of evidence here. And in terms of how this plays out when you have informant or uh, cooperating defendants, there's always a high suspicion from a jury about whether they're telling the truth, whether they got a good plea deal in return for saying things against the others. And so it's a little bit tricky. And we've seen many cases where it has fallen apart because the jury rejects the testimony of uh, cooperating former defendants in the same case. But here, where it has all of the other substantiating evidence, I think that they will overcome that, and they'll be able to do that. And the defense that they're planning on um, is one that I just don't think is going to play out. I mean, the, the rumor is that Rhodes is going to say, well, this was a lawful order from the president, and we were just following orders. I don't think anyone is going to fall for that, Um, So I I think this is going to be a case that may likely actually end in convictions.
3: So, Jill, let me play devil's advocate for a second. Rhodes is a Yale-educated lawyer (laughs) by all accounts. You know, he was a smart guy in law school. Um, Do you think that he might be offering this defense not because he thinks it will work at trial, but because he will raise it on appeal and hope he can win over a majority at the Supreme Court?
0: These days, one cannot trust the Supreme Court. We know that. One cannot predict what the Supreme Court would do. But, and maybe this is my ever Pollyanna self speaking, uh, and it's my wishful thinking rather than my legal brain saying it, but it seems so far-fetched to me that I I can't believe that anyone is going to think that the Supreme Court would accept that the president ordered them to do something violent to prevent the Constitution from being fulfilled. Uh, I think, as Barb said in the beginning, this is one of your classic cases that would fit every definition of seditious conspiracy.
3: Yeah, from your mouth to God's ear. And I think the Supreme Court... Although, obviously, they've been deeply disappointing on, um, you know, maybe hardcore conservative agenda issues like abortion. When it's come to elections and the former president's efforts to claim fraud, it seems like they've been firmly on the side of democracy. So I tend to agree with you. Maybe Rhodes hopes that he can find one person on the jury who will hang the jury and force the government to retry its case. You know, it's never as easy to try your case the second time around. Um, but hopefully this, this pans out well and results in convictions. And Barb, what does the government do? I mean, what's, is the, the end game here just getting convictions in this case? Or do you think that they hope to take this further if they obtain convictions here?
1: Yeah, I think both um, obtaining convictions here certainly is part of the goal. I mean, these defendants did something very grievously wrong against the United States and they need to be held accountable and we need to deter other people who might get similar ideas. So these convictions alone are really important. I think one interesting dynamic that could play out during the trial itself that could be very interesting is that if Stuart Rhodes asserts this defense that they expected Donald Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act because... They were there to, you know, defend the United States. Um, they've got to put on a witness to that. Like they can't just say it. You have to have a witness. So who's the witness? Do you put Stuart Rhodes himself on? And what's his source? Who was he talking to? Why did he why did he think this? Does that connect him up to Donald Trump or Roger Stone and others who were in the Willard Hotel War Room. So I think that could be really interesting to watch how this defense plays out. If if that's who what do they you think it is?
3: If you had to bet, what do you think his connection claim is going to be? Uh, I don't know. All <laughs> I know is there's been a
1: lot of connection with Roger, Roger Stone and Stone. Michael Flynn. Yeah, both of those two. Yeah. So I don't know, but I think if he wants to use that defense, there, there has to be testimony about what made him think that Donald Trump would invoke the insurrection act, I and mean, maybe it was just wishful thinking, but. Uh, if, if he's got any chance of a defense here, he's got to name names. And I think that could be very interesting. But I think that um, the next step, this is like, you know, common organized crime prosecution. A, t- a classic strategy is you convict, you know, one level. We're sort of at this mid-level of participants now with the people who attack the Capitol. And then you try to flip them. So once you convict these people and they're facing 20 years in prison, you say, all right, your only way to reduce that number is if you want to cooperate, Tell us truthfully all that you know about this, including whether you were coordinating with anybody in the White House or the Willard Hotel or the Trump campaign, now's the time to tell us. Um, And of course, you know, they don't take that at face value. The prosecutors don't. They try to corroborate that information with documents, messages, uh, surveillance video, other witnesses and other kinds of things. But there is a possibility that, you know, as you said, there already are a few of these oath keepers who flipped and have said they're going to testify Talking to the higher ups in this organization who may have been coordinating with members of the Trump campaign, I think that would be extremely valuable and, and could be part of the end game here.
3: You know, Barb, a lot of people are concerned about how slowly DOJ is moving or how slowly they perceive DOJ as moving. And in my experience, these sorts of cases, especially when it's conspiracy and, and you're going up the chain from least culpable to most culpable it can take some time. Do you think that um,
1: DOJ is moving too slowly? How do you feel about the pace here? I think in recent weeks or months even, the pace has been really quite good from what we publicly know. I'll also say that very often there's a lot going on that is not public. That's the way it's supposed to go. I think the one thing that um, looks like it may not have moved as quickly as possible is just kind of getting started. It seems that the Justice Department focused a lot on you know, sort of the low hanging fruit, if you will, the people who were trespassing and disorderly conduct and the like. And it didn't seem like it wasn't for like about a year before they really got rolling in earnest. Now, who knows, maybe it took that long to put all these pieces together. It is an enormous, enormous case. But, um, you know, it seems like they were a little slow getting started, but in recent months they've been moving at uh, what Judge Deary would call reasonable dispatch. All right. I'm going to make some news right here on our podcast. I am writing a book. The working title is Attack from Within, How Disinformation is Threatening American Democracy and the Rule of Law. And it's kind of a frightening thing to say so out loud. You know, I've kind of been tinkering with this for the past few months, but I told you guys about this today. And, um, I, uh, I, I, I I want to work on it and I want to share the news. Um, you know, in the book, I want to discuss how propaganda has been used historically, how social media is being used to expand the reach and depth of disinformation and how bad actors are using disinformation to manipulate the public and undermine democratic elections. So I share that with you and our listeners, I guess, um, because my editor told me that it's a good idea to tell people when you're writing a book, because once you say it out loud, you feel the pressure to get it done. That's probably true. Um, A friend of mine, Dan Mulhern has said, you should set big, hairy, audacious goals and communicate those goals to other people to hold you accountable. So there it is, I'm writing a book. Um, But I wanted to uh, talk to both of you about taking on new challenges, especially when they're a little bit scary. And you've both taken on big challenges in your lives, whether it was you know, Jill accepting the assignment to prosecute the Watergate case against the president of the United States or Joyce becoming a U.S. attorney. Um, you've both undertaken significant writing commitments too. And so I wanna ask your advice as I uh, begin this, this journey. So first, let me ask you about your decision process when you decide to take on a significant professional commitment You know, how do you think it through and how do you decide if it's right for you? I know, um, you know, there is always the lean in, uh, whatever it is, just take it on. And I think that's a little bit simplistic, right? You need to think about all of those things in your life. Is this something I have the bandwidth to do? Is this the right fit for me? How do you you work through those decisions, Jill? Even like when you're deciding to take on a new job. So taking on a job may be a little different than taking on writing
0: a book. But for taking on a job, I, I would say one of the ones that I thought the hardest about, uh, or maybe two of them that I'll talk about, one was becoming General Counsel of the Army. When that was first offered to me, I was like, uh, I wouldn't recognize a general if I tripped on one. I don't know what all those insignia on people's shoulders are. <laughs> didn't and, you get the
1: little fruit salad to wear on your shirt? <laughs> like, is that where the pins came from?
0: No, I never. You know what? I didn't, but I did have a flag on any car that I rode in. I had, a, I had the equivalent cool. of a four star rank. And so, in, in, on an Army base, if you're in a car with a flag, the car gets saluted. So they didn't know who was inside because I'm in a... Anyway, that's aside from the point. <laughs> so when, when I got that offer, I did a lot of research. I read all the transition materials that the presidential transition team prepares. And I looked at what would I do when I actually sat down at the desk? You know, not what does it sound like, but what would my job be? When I got there in the every day, what would I be doing? And as I looked at the issues I would deal with, I went... Those are really interesting and exciting. I don't know anything about them. I can't answer them now. But I have the skills to figure out how to get them. And I know the right questions to ask to get the answers. And so I decided to to do that. The same thing was true when I decided to switch careers from law to business. That was a big, big decision and it involved even things like thinking through how would I write my resume to convince someone that I was qualified to be in business as opposed to being their lawyer. And um, so it is, I would say, it's a calculated risk you take when you take on a new challenge. And you just have to evaluate you know, how much you want to do it what your skill set is, how much you think you'll enjoy it, make a list of the things you've enjoyed in the past and the things you've hated in the past and evaluate whether the new task in front of you has qualities that are those you've enjoyed and few of the ones you hated. Those are all good things in taking on a new job.
1: How about you, Joyce? How do you make those big life professional decisions? So I'm maybe not as
3: disciplined as Jill and you are about these decisions. Um, I, I do think that you have to engage in a very um, sort of calculated decision-making process about whether it's something that you have time to give your best effort to. I'm, I'm not a lean-in person. Um, I've got four kids, and I have a super supportive husband who always— um, sort of stays out of my decision-making process, lets me make my own decision, but makes it clear that if I need his support in any way, I'll get it. So that, I think, makes my decision-making a little bit easier. And what I tend to do is... If I'm being asked to take on something like this podcast is a great example. This was such a labor of love. I wanted to hang out with you guys. I wanted to discuss these issues. I knew it was going to take time out of my schedule, but I thought it was absolutely worth it because it was something I wanted to do. And, you know, I felt the same way when I made the decision to become U.S. attorney. Barb, the same deal as you, right? When you become the U.S. attorney, You are no longer a career employee and you know that your days at the Department of Justice are limited and and you will have to leave a job that you love very much. And so I had to think long and hard about whether it was worth it to me to give up something that I loved to do a job that I felt was important. And ultimately, the answer to that was obviously yes. And I, I find that the older that I get, that's the sort of decision-making that I engage in. Does this feel important? Do I think that it will be valuable to the community? And is it something that I will enjoy? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then I know that my family will help me find a way to do it.
1: Yeah, I remember having this conversation with Loretta Lynch when you know our time was winding down in the Obama administration. Uh, you know, she was asked, "What what are you going to do next?" And she said, "I just want to do something at this stage in my life where I feel like I can have a positive impact." You know, there's uh, I, I've had a chance to do a lot of things I found interesting and challenging and important, and and now what's important is just having a positive impact. When I um, left the U.S. Attorney's Office. Um, to go to the university of Michigan and I was weighing various options. I actually put together like a little chart and I had things that I was looking for in a job like, you know, uh, impact opportunity, professional fulfillment, um, compensation, you know, all these different things that come with a job. And then I weighted each of those things by what I thought, you know, was um, the relative importance to me. And when I did all that and put all the options on there, um, teaching came out like way, way head and shoulders above everything else. And so it was, you know, really good. And it has been so fulfilling and makes me so happy. So that was a good way to, um, I think for me, at least to reach that decision, you know, but very similar to what you're talking about. What do you enjoy uh, where can you have a positive impact? What do you like to do? How do you like to spend your time? All of those things. All right, well, now let me turn to writing. So Jill, um, you wrote The Watergate Girl, which is a fantastic book. And if ever, anybody hasn't read it, I highly recommend it. It's like part memoir, part history book about Watergate. And it's it's absolutely fascinating to learn what it was like to be a woman lawyer in the 1970s. Um, what was your, I was gonna ask what your writing process was like, but you know your decision-making process to take that on Number one, and then number two, your writing process—like how'd you pace yourself—and like that's what is a little daunting to me. Like, man, I got I got to get it done, and I want to make sure I have uh, you know the time to do it because I have lots of other commitments.
0: So I'll answer both parts of your question. The first is how did I decide to do it? And I had actually been asked to write the book in 1976, right after Watergate, and I decided I didn't have the time. I was very much involved in my career, and that I also believed at the time I didn't have the perspective. I didn't have enough to say, and so I wasn't going to do it. I then retired in 2008. Obviously, I failed at that. Okay, so we can admit that. And I flew to Italy with my husband to be with very dear friends who I will be seeing Um, on Monday in New York, um, for the first time since COVID. And they said to me, we've always said you should write a book. You've always said you were too busy. You just retired. Start now. And I really had nothing to say other than, you know, I haven't decided on what I'm doing next. Maybe this is what I should do. And I said, well, when I get back, I'll do it. I don't have a computer with me. And they said, here's a pad of paper, start and I literally started writing an outline while I was at there they had rented a house on the Amalfi coast, and there I was with this unbelievably beautiful, inspiring setting, and I started writing. And then it, it gets a little harder, so that gets to the writing process. And a lot of people set a specific time that they will, you know, spend nine to twelve writing, or they will spend for me. 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. That's more my time of being productive. Um, and other people just sort of fill it in when they can. I found that I just sort of started writing and I couldn't stop. I ended up with probably, oh, six, seven hundred pages, obviously, way more than one needs for a book. And then it was a question of deciding how to get it. And here's one piece of advice that I found valuable. I stopped off while I was in Iowa campaigning for Hillary at the University of Iowa, which has a phenomenal summer writing program. Um, And I met with the head of the program, and she said to me, why are you waiting till next summer? This was in November. Why don't you join a meetup group in your local community and they will help you. And so I went online and looked up for a meetup writers group. I joined a group and I went there without knowing what was expected, found out that you submit your writing to them. And so at the end of the first session, they said, would you think we can help you? And I said, I don't know, you're all writing fiction and, and sci-fi and I'm writing nonfiction. And I also don't have anything written, I just have an outline. And they said, well, we could help you with your outline. And I actually submitted the outline to them after my husband read it and said, you're going to have to fill some more in because when you say Magruder coffee, I know what that story is because we've been married for 40 years, but, uh, but back then maybe 30 years. And they won't know what that means. So I took a little time, filled in the outline a little bit more, and they gave me very helpful advice on how to structure the book. And that was very, very significant in starting to actually take the hundreds of pages I had written and organize it around what was going to be in the book and what wasn't going to be in the book.
1: Yeah, good advice. Joyce, you, you um, have taken on a serious commitment by publishing a daily Substack newsletter, your Civil Discourse, which is great. Everyone should subscribe to it. Lots of great Absolutely. insights about it. Law and the News, and that seems like a big commitment to, to me. You're publishing daily, um, and you need to come up with new topics every day. What's What's your writing process like, and how did you um, think that you could take on that commitment?
3: So you're you're very kind, and you're giving me more credit than I deserve. I actually don't write daily. My initial goal had been to write two to three days a week, and I find that there's just so much to discuss that it's closer to four to five days a week. But you know, my, um, my academic interests are in democratic institutions and the rule of law. That's where I focus my work and, and my seminar level teaching. Um, and when it comes to writing in that area, by trade, I'm as much an appellate lawyer as I am a trial lawyer. An appellate writing is a very particular kind of writing that appeals to judges and helps them evaluate cases, but to be honest, it's not very interesting. You learn to take all the adjectives out. You're very plain. Um, You don't use much in the way of descriptive language. And so something that I've found that I've had to do in the last couple of years, and Barb, I know you've done the same thing, right? We've both written columns for different newspapers or or online venues. And so I've been trying to find a new voice, the voice that's not a boring appellate writer, but I also want to maintain that sort of scholarly reserve and objectivity and provide people with facts and analysis that lets them figure out how they view issues on their own. I think public education is supremely important. And so that's what really led me to Substack. I I spent um, sort of a ridiculous amount of time, about five or six months, actually planning what I wanted to write about. Substack is just an online platform that lets you write a newsletter that gets delivered to people's inboxes directly if they subscribe. So many people are familiar with Heather Cox Richardson, the historian who writes this fantastic newsletter just about every day, putting current events in historical context. And it really helps me think I wanted to sort of be like Heather, but write about politics and law and help people who didn't have law degrees, give them a shortcut into thinking through these issues for themselves. So that's sort of what I did. And I found that the more that I wrote, the more I enjoyed it. I'll tell you one thing that I do, and this is sort of a leftover from my appellate lawyer days. I try to be very disciplined about writing, and I'll get up early every morning and I'll write usually something like 1,200 to 2,000 words. I may use it in my substack. I may not. It may become materials that I use when I'm teaching. It may be materials that I don't use right now and just hold on to. But, um, you know, like you, I had talked about doing a, a, a book project, and I decided I didn't yet have the voice that I wanted to. I needed to be more secure in the voice and think more about where I could be the most helpful, because I do think for me, it's this notion of public education mm-hmm. about the law. Um, and I can't wait to see what you're going to write. For one thing, I love the way that you write. You know, you always bring really good information, but you say it in a way, it sounds like you're having a conversation with me. I love reading your columns. So I'm looking forward to the book for that um, very selfish reason that I want to see what you have to say. But I think that you're the same way, Barb. I mean, I've noticed you have this huge commitment to public facing education. And helping people better understand what's important to democracy, so I think it'll be a really important book in that sense too.
1: Well, th- thank you, Joyce. And uh, yeah, you know, like like you, like both of you, I I try to explain rather than opine, uh, yes. and that's what i hope hope to do in the book. Well, thank you. That's excellent advice,
0: uh, Barb. Can I add one other yeah. piece,
1: which is you, you asked about pacing, mm-hmm. and
0: you know, when I first started, it was two thousand and eight. There was no time pressure. And I was focused more on just a memoir. And it didn't matter if it was published in 2008 or nine or 10. And then Donald Trump got elected. And the relevance of Watergate became something much more. And my pace was forced to be increased dramatically. And I think that you're writing about a subject that is of high interest now. And so that's going to force you to stay on target, to have a real goal. And since you already have an editor, your editor will be the one who will be checking in on you. What do you have for me today? Mm -hmm. Um, And and that'll keep you really focused and making sure that
1: you do it on a daily basis. All right, very good. Well, if our listeners have any advice for either decision-making in your professional life Or um, advice on writing, we are all ears. So thanks to you both for your good advice.
2: With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need.
3: Well, now we get to answer your questions. It's our favorite part of the show. Last week, it was a lot of fun because we were all together in Austin, Texas, and we actually got to take questions from a live audience, which was fun and exciting and challenging. Our listeners ask really great questions, and this week is no exception. We had a hard time choosing, but I think we've got three if you've got a question for us, please email us at sistersinlawpoliticon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. And if we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week. Often we'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can. But today, our first question, this is an interesting one. It comes from Catherine in Palatine, Illinois, and she asks,
1: could you please elaborate on what it means to think like a lawyer? Barb? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, You know, to me, I think it means uh, thinking with precision. It's not enough, for example, uh, to think in very general terms that someone did something bad. To charge them with a crime, they have to have committed a uh, violated a specific statute that's on the books. And when you look at statutes, you have to look at each element of the statute. So you really have to break it down very precisely. I think the same is true when it comes to case holdings when people are applying precedent, you have to look at the holding of the case and then argue how your case is either like that prior case in important respects or how it's different from that prior case in important respects. So I think it is that precision in thinking as opposed to just sort of being, you know, having a general mushy sense of he's bad, he did something wrong, he must be guilty of a crime. You really have to look very precisely at elements of statutes and holdings of cases. What do you guys think it means? I have
0: a different interpretation. I agree with what you've said, but I think thinking like a lawyer is really matching facts to um, relevant questions and trying to figure out solutions. I, and when I worked at Motorola, I worked with a lot of engineers, and what I found is that engineers think a lot like lawyers. They see, they try to figure out what's what's the issue, what's the problem, and what do I know that might solve that problem? So I think that's also part of it. Um, It's learning how to think and to analyze and to evaluate information and knowing how to ask
3: the right questions. Those are all, I think, elements of how to think like a lawyer. You know, when we teach law students, sometimes we like to tell them that what you learn in law school isn't necessarily how to practice law, it's how to think like a lawyer. Which is why I think this question is such an intriguing one, and something that I think about in this regard, I agree with everything that y'all have said, I think sometimes it's about learning to look at a problem and think about it from 360 degrees, not just to fall into the answer that appeals to you the most or the easiest answer, but really to be pretty vigorous about assessing what you think the answer is, and then comparing that to other possible answers using all of the statutes, all of the law, and all of the facts that are available to you, and trying to come up with the best answer. And that might mean sometimes that if you're looking at an issue for one of your clients, you come up with what you think the right answer is, but you also have to work through other possible answers and be willing to explain why they're wrong or even concede parts of those arguments that might be right and explain why they don't um, apply to your situation. So it's this very analytic process of getting to the best answer that works the best for your client and I think that's one of the things I enjoy so much about the law is that sort of rigorous process of thinking. Our next question comes from Larry. Larry says, if a decision is made by one federal circuit court but the issue is not considered by the Supreme Court, what's the state of the law for that issue in the rest of the country? Um, And I'll take first stab at at that one. You know, this is actually a very common situation. When you've got an issue that hasn't made it up to the Supreme Court, one or more of the circuit courts of appeals will have had the opportunity to rule on that issue. Sometimes they'll all agree. But other times you'll get a split in the circuits. The 11th Circuit might rule one way. The 6th Circuit might rule the other way. And it's those issues where there's a split in the circuit that are sort of primed to go up to the Supreme Court for the Supreme Court to make its decision, and have the final say. But often, when there's not in the circ- uh, not a split in the circuits, or, or even sometimes where 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 there is, uh, those circuit court cases will remain the law for quite some period of time. And that can create difficulties down the road if the Supreme Court reverses. For instance, there was an an issue that was decided in a case called Jones by the Supreme Court that had to do with what sort of process the Justice Department needed to go through before it could attach a GPS monitor to the outside of a car that would travel on public streets to obtain data about it. And and you can understand why DOJ might want to do that. For instance, in a drug case, you might want to see where people were going And we made the assumption that we could do that at a fairly low level um, through an order that we could simply obtain with, with some ease showing probable cause. But when the Supreme Court heard that case... Um, They decided that the circuit courts that had approved that procedure that DOJ had used were wrong and that it would require a search warrant, a much higher form of of process and proof for the Justice Department. So those sorts of changes, when the Supreme Court does finally rule on an issue, can um, unsettle the law for a little bit of time. Our last question comes from at CSCHACHT, and they ask, If John Roberts had to resign or if he died, who would be the next chief? How does that work? That's such
0: a good question um, that I think most people don't really understand. But the chief justice is appointed by the president in the same way that an associate justice is. The chief justice does not have to have ever served on the court before. It could be someone uh, appointed without that. And in fact... um, Out of 17 chief justices, only five have been associate justices. So I thought that's a pretty interesting thing. They come into the court and they're in charge and they've never served on the court before. So if Judge Roberts, Justice Roberts uh, were to leave the court, it would be up to the president at the time of that occurrence to determine if they were going to elevate someone from the court to the chief position or to appoint someone outside the court to become the chief.
3: Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Kim will be back next week. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw@politicon.com, or tweet them for next week's show using Hashtag Sisters in Law. Go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our pale blue tee, our hoodie, and other goodies. Now that it's getting cooler, you're going to want that hoodie. And please support this week's sponsors. HelloFresh, Stamps, Thrive Cosmetics, Olive in June, and Moink. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them. They really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week... Follow Hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with a new episode, Hashtag Sisters in Law. I do have a question for y'all, though. After all of the questions last week, you know, when we were doing questions with the audience and we asked people to tell us what their favorite barbecue place was in Austin, Mm -hmm. I I have a confession to make. I got to the airport, I had a few extra minutes. I ran down to the Salt Lake place. I got one last barbecue sandwich, a bunch of extra sauce. um, And I felt sort of guilty about eating on the plane, but actually um, I did. (laughs) Was there lasting impact for y'all from hearing people talk about their favorite barbecue?
0: There was, and of course I brought home huge quantities that I bought at the airport on the way home I brought home barbecue for my husband, but my Uber driver had recommended that I go to the taco deli for a breakfast deli, unfor- a breakfast taco. Unfortunately, they were done serving breakfast by the time I got there, but I did manage to get several tacos that were delicious. They were Yum. really good. But I haven't had dinner yet tonight, so talking about this <laughs> is only exacerbating my hunger right now.
1: Yeah, you know, I went up to Dallas uh, after our um, trip to Austin because I wanted to see a Texas Rangers game and the George W. Bush Presidential Library, which I did. Um, so I had uh, some barbecue there. And I'm trying to think of the name of the place. It was excellent. It was the oldest barbecue place in Dallas. So they claim, they probably all claim that they're the oldest. Um, oh, it was Sonny Bryan's Smokehouse. It was, mm. it was very good. And I had a brisket sandwich, and it was delicious. Well, y'all are going to have to come down here. You know, we're more
3: inclined to do pork ribs than brisket, although some of the places here make brisket. But we have so many good places, Saws, Dreamlands, Jim and Nick's. Y'all come down here, and we'll eat a bunch of barbecue.
0: Well, for Rosh Hashanah dinner, I had a different kind of brisket, and it was really good. God, I love Jewish brisket. It's so good.
3: Now I'm hungry. I haven't had dinner either, Jill.
0: My sorority sister who hosted the dinner hosted at um, Serenella's, which is part of the Lettuce Entertain You chain. I don't know if if they have a Serenella's where you are, but boy, was that brisket
1: good. Since neither of you two have had dinner, I think I better go before I start looking like a, a chicken drumstick <laughs> like in the cartoons. <laughs>